Hey there, welcome to the Deeper Podcast, a podcast that's all about how we live lives that unleash courage and love in both small ways, but also big ways, and how we do that in life together. I'm one of your hosts, Reverend Sean, and I am so glad to be here because this is our last episode in our Reassembly Required series, which is all about constructing a guide to reassembling broken relationships. And today we're kind of zooming out. We're moving out from the personal relationships that we've been focused on for the past few weeks, and we're centering into a communal relationship, a relationship that has been broken between settlers and indigenous peoples, and how we here in Northern Colorado have this opportunity to get back into right relationship with Native peoples through the Hughes Land Back movement. We're going to go on a journey, and, th and that journey begins in an open field where Colorado State University's giant football stadium used to be. Now, it's been disassembled for a few years, but it's been this, the site of a big conversation about how we should be using the land here in northern Colorado. A conversation that brings questions of affordable housing, developing in natural areas, but also native sovereignty to the table. Our journey begins there because it's in that space that we start to ask the question about our responsibility to what has happened in the past. To help us have that conversation, later in the episode, I'm going to be joined by two Indigenous activists who are going to talk about why they're asking for that land to be given back to Indigenous peoples for Indigenous stewardship. Now that conversation, I got to share just a fraction of it in our Sunday service. And so this is our opportunity to share the full interview. It is an interview that weaves story and activism, personal narratives and collective ones. It's just really beautiful. I felt really honored to be able to not only hear the story, but share it with our, with our community and with all of you. Now, if you're listening and you're not from Northern Colorado, and you, you don't know what Hughes Stadium is or have no connection to Colorado State University, I encourage you to keep listening. The question about Indigenous sovereignty and how we relate to the past horrors of colonization is, is not a question that is reserved in any one space. In every community, we need to be having these conversations. And so while we're going to be talking in a particularity in this episode, there's opportunities everywhere to get involved in these movements for reparations and for land back. So let's begin the story. A few days ago, I put on my hat and my coat and I headed out to the edge of Fort Collins. So here I am, uh, just off of Overland Trail. The Horsetooth Reservoir is just up that way to the west. And I am at the old road to the Hughes Stadium property. The Hughes Stadium property was at the heart of a big communal conversation and debate that we had here in Fort Collins about its future. CSU had built the new stadium in the middle of their campus, and their old stadium, which was falling into disrepair, well, they had to figure out what to do with it. Now, originally, CSU had decided they wanted to sell it to a developer so they could build housing, but that didn't go over well with many residents. They wanted this space to turn into a natural area. And so in 2021, there was a referendum in which citizens put on the ballot a non-binding request that the city actually negotiate with CSU to buy this property, which passed with over 60%. Now the city has entered into negotiations and is going to pay CSU for the site to, to, to preserve it, to keep it as an open space. And for a while, I thought that was the end of the story. And that was until I heard about the Hughes Land Back Movement. 
groups of activists, both native and non-native, are actually making a different request. Not only be maintained as an open space, but be put under the stewardship of native peoples. To be used for the purposes of native peoples. This is part of a land back movement. What does that mean? Well, all of this land was under the stewardship of indigenous peoples before Western colonizing powers. And through various means, the land was taken from them. This could have been through direct, through warfare, cultural genocide, treaties that were signed under duress, but through various mechanisms, this land moved from the stewardship of indigenous peoples to the ownership of non-indigenous people. And so a group of activists has been asking for this land to be given back. When I moved to Port Collins, I started to look at the history. Where did this place come from? And here I am on the corner of Overland Trail, which was an actual trail that settlers would use to go to California and to go west to Oregon. So the fort in Fort Collins was protecting this trail of settlers moving across indigenous land from, well, the indigenous peoples pushing back upon that, that settlement. The other thing I learned about Fort Collins is we're pretty, we're pretty centered on this institution, Colorado State University. It is a big player. Coming from Canada, I had never heard of this thing called a land-grant university. And so when I heard that, I thought, okay, so the land that CSU is on, well, that land was given to them, a land-grant. But it's actually a little bit more complicated. And I want to go somewhere to tell that next part of the story. There's no doubting that Colorado State University is at the heart of the Fort Collins community. Since its founding, it has been a major economic engine, drawing students for, to Fort Collins and enriching the local economy. CSU employs roughly 7,000 workers. And when you account for the jobs that are created in Fort Collins to support CSU, well, it almost doubles, which means that about 20% of the jobs in Fort Collins are related to CSU's existence. But how did CSU get its start? To understand the answer to that question, we have to go back to 1862, when President Abraham Lincoln signed the Morrill Act. The act offered thousands of indigenous lands to each state for free to endow in agricultural colleges like CSU. Some land had already been taken from Native nations through treaty, secession, or seizure, but much of the land would actually be taken after the act was signed. In western states like Colorado, most of the land that was given to colleges was located within their borders. In eastern, southern, and midwestern states, land could be pretty much from anywhere. Now, most states sold their land to speculators to raise money for their endowments, but many universities still maintain ownership over these tracts of land. The Morrill Act was a pivotal moment in the history of higher education because it provided probably the single biggest investment in higher education institutions. Uh, so here I am at CSU's Foothills campus. It has a lot of different um, complexes from the equine area, the Temple Grandin Center, to atmospheric sciences and the Forest Center. All of this uh, is contained right here, just a little bit north of the former Hughes Stadium. Now we came here specifically because this area has a very particular part in the history of CSU, which is that this very land was given to CSU to be sold or used or leased as a part of their institution. According to an expose done by High Country News entitled Land Grab Universities, Colorado State University received 89,000 acres from the Morrill Act. This gave CSU $400,000 to be used in perpetuity because the money had to go into an endowment, which if we adjust for inflation, 
gives us approximately $10 million that has generated income and interest for CSU from its beginning. Now, the 89,000 acres that CSU was granted all over Colorado, a few chunks to the west of the city, but then over here in Steamboat, near Pueblo, down near Colorado Springs, and even near the Oklahoma border. This land was given to Colorado State University, even though the treaties that gave the U.S. government formal ownership over the land were entered into duress, were the product of mistranslation, were done under threat of violence, and the compensation for indigenous peoples, well, was pennies on the dollar. In fact, the endowment return on payments to tribes was 130 to 1. CSU got $130 for every $1 that the U.S. paid for indigenous title. CSU would not be CSU if, well, it weren't for this land and the 89,000 acres. It would not have succeeded. Which means that the prosperity and the modern incarnation of Fort Collins and northern Colorado would not be who we are, well, without the land that was given to CSU. And so the question for us is, if that land that was given wasn't the federal government's to give, that means that all the prosperity that we have here in Fort Collins now there's a debt to be paid for that prosperity, so to speak. So now we have a little bit of a sense of what's going on. I'm going to invite Christina Ayala and Alyssa Tabona into the conversation. I am so grateful to be joined here by two Indigenous women, Christina Ayala and Alyssa Tabona, who are part of a women's-led Indigenous organization, Teoshpaye Wiya Maka. And we're here to talk about the reemergence of the, the encampment on the vacated Hughes land site, the, the place of the former Hughes Stadium that CSU operated, and now is this site of this conversation about what it would mean to bring that land into Indigenous stewardship. So I'm so grateful for you two to be in this conversation, and, and I'd love you to introduce yourselves a little bit more fully. My name is Kristenia Ayala, and I'm the founder and the co-director of Teoshbe Wiamaka. I'm Elisa Tavona. My greatest connection here up at Fort Collins was through Colorado State University with the Office of International Programs. But I connected up with this mischievous young woman here, Kristenia, about what, 14 years ago? Yeah. Uh, through the United Nations Association Indigenous Concerns Committee. And, you know, we've been uh, connected ever since. I'm very pleased to be working as a communication specialist with Teoshpe and continue to really gather accomplices and allies for our initiatives. How did you both come to the work of, of activism and, and, and this work in your organization? Well, <clears throat> we've both been activists, I'd say the majority of our adult lives. I'm, of course, been active in the Native American community. I've worked with the, the Big Mountain issue back in the seven, uh, late 70s, early 80s. That's where I started. I started attending their meetings and marching with them and uh, continued that when I moved back here to Colorado. What about you, Alyssa? What was your journey into activism? 
I've been an activist since the very early civil rights movement, and that has really lived very um, actively in my heart. But so I think currently I'm on a journey from this sort of very colonized brain pattern that I've had, you know, most of my life really getting exposed to the whole notion of decolonization and understanding that I, I really align more with that. I really feel like the kind of divergent thinking that is brought to our, to Turtle Island, to our continent by this sort of non-patriarchal, non-ownership-based ideology really more aligns with who I am. What Elisa and I have created is sort of a, a, well, it is a non-hierarchical organization where everybody um, has d- decision-making power. We talk, we talk ideas through and we go, you know, we decide, oh yeah, that is a good idea. And then we allow the person who came up with the idea to guide the, you know, us into the beginning of whatever the idea may be. So we and we and we enjoy that, and we enjoy the fact that, you know, um, we don't we don't put our work that we do in a little box. You know, oh well, we're going to work from eight to five or something like that. We work when we can <clears throat> because we both have families. We enjoy that kind of freedom, and I think that's how America should be run. <laughs> and I feel like it's always beautiful when you can in your organization, embody the principles that you want the larger world to embody uh-huh. because it, you, you get to like learn and develop the muscles on the micro level that the, the, the world is going to need to develop. And yeah. so you, you start that journey and then you can be really good teachers and mentors for others about what is it like to be non-hierarchical? What is it like to, to have a more um, flexible and relational approach to, to this sort of work? Mm-hmm. Well, I would love you to talk a little bit about the, the the history of how we got here to this this question of both the Hughes Stadium, but also the, this place in the intersection of this de- decolonial work on on Turtle Island during the Morrill Act. It took all the stolen lands. This area that we're in now was the Arapaho. Northern Cheyenne or Cheyenne before they were divided. It was their territory. The Utes were here, Apache, Shoshone, Lakota. There were a number of tribes that were here. And it turned into a gathering place because this whole area is sort of like in a bowl. And so a lot of the Plains tribes actually traveled here and made this a gathering place during um during the migration of the buffalo, because we all followed the buffalo, because that's how we survived, you know. If I could just interject, when you say here, I mean, you mean like here, like yes. the, the, like Fort Collins and, and the, like the, the place where Hughes Stadium was, like, this isn't just like generally here, this is like very specifically relationships very, in this very place. Specific. It's, it's in entirety of Colorado. It includes like Colorado Springs all down to that area to New Mexico and sometimes into New Mexico and then going back up north. So the buffalo, when they migrate, they migrated this whole territory of Colorado. The migration of, of the buffalo 
led or started the migration of the indigenous peoples too, so that they could survive through the through the winters and have the hides for clothing and for housing and food. Every part of the buffalo was used. You know, the horns were used for drinking water. The buffalo bladder was used to carry water, you know, after everything was cleaned really well. The buffalo is very, very sacred to us because the Lakota, the Lakota beginning story is that we, we were down, we lived down in Wind Cave. And we lived down there and the buffalo, our brothers were down there with us. And this was during the great flood, the time of the great flood. When the waters started to dry up, we always took our cues from the buffalo because as I said, they were our big brothers. And so when it was time for us to emerge, the emergence, um, the buffalo led the way. And when we got up there, we were looking around at a brand new world because obviously the terrain had changed and shifted. The buffalo showed us how to live in harmony with the earth. And a lot of people don't know this, and maybe a lot of them do, but the buffalo, when they eat uh, the grasses, uh, the prairie grasses and different things like that, they go right down to the, the, where the earth begins and they just crunch that off but they never jerk their head backs, their heads back because they don't want to take the roots out of the ground. If you take the roots out of the ground, there's not going to be anything there for the next season when the migration begins again. And so we learned everything that we knew from the animal kingdom, the, the four-legged, the winged ones, the little critters we call, we call them the Wamakashkan. These are all the little scurrying animals. So we watched what the, you know, what our relatives who are all our ancestors and they're all uh, our elders. And they taught us, they taught the indigenous people, everything we know to live in harmony and balance with the earth. Well, that started to change when, you know, when the uh, people arrived from Europe and started moving this way. And as you know, there were millions and millions and millions of Native Americans that were murdered. And, you know, the massacres were huge and violent, extremely violent. The Europeans that came here didn't know anything about living in harmony with the earth. And so the depletion that we see in every aspect of nature has, is what they brought with them. And so like you have this westward expansion, which is over top of violent suppression and decimation of native tribes and, and the moral act from my understanding, what it did is it, is it took land that was formerly under the stewardship of native, of native nations and gave it to institutions to, to sell or to lease or to profit from so that they could raise their endowments. Mm-hmm. To bring it briefly into the present, I mean, that's what's so disturbing about this whole thing is because at least initially when Sarah caught wind of this whole thing, CSU was on the verge of selling the former site of Hughes Stadium to a developer and they were going to develop develop housing. They later changed their tune to say, oh, yeah, it was going to be housing to benefit low-income folks and so on. And that's a whole evolutionary process too. But the fact that they were going to develop it at all to the tune of making millions and millions of dollars, I think that really lit a fire under Sarah and under the um, 
students and the community people that she was able to recruit to this initiative. And so that was when they focused on getting it rezoned as public open space. The initiative on the ballot and they won. That you know was a victory in some ways for preser- preserving the actual land. But this next step of being able to return it to uh, stewardship of the the original caretakers, it has been part of this ongoing piece that that Tioche Bay is now become a part of. Can you say a bit more about what what that means? Like why why it's important to give give it back into stewardship and what stewardship like indigenous stewardship would mean? This is a really good question, don't you think, Kristen? <laughs> oh, yeah, it's a, it's a very good question and it's a very deep question. First, I'll just say how Elisa and I got involved. They were having a walkabout on there. I think the first walkabout and Amber Lane called and asked me if I if I could join them. And she said, because it's, it's part of a land back initiative in Fort Collins. Well, I had been hearing about land back and researching it for about two years. And so I was pretty surprised when I found out that we had a land back initiative right here in our, our front yard. And so I said, oh, yeah, I would love I would love to join you. So I did went on the walkabout, but I'll tell you, my breath was taken away as we headed north down a trail and we came across two gigantic cottonwoods, twin cottonwoods. And it really took my breath away because for the Lakota people, that's our tree of life. And it's very sacred to us. And I could feel the spirits around it because I can, you know, I could visualize people coming together, indigenous tribes coming together and meeting in that space. I could feel that energy. So I said, oh yeah, I want to become involved in this. I heard that they were going to have uh, morning prayers there. And so I called Elissa and I said, Elissa, we've got to, we've got to join this for morning prayers. And so we went up, we, we did attend a prayer service and it turned into a day-long gathering. So we had a, a lot of speakers and it was very good. Somebody asked me if I knew anything about intergenerational grieving and healing. Yeah. And I am the first woman in my, on my mother's side who was never sent off to boarding school. And I'm so grateful to her for that because boarding schools, as, as we now know, have raped, murdered, tortured, and beaten children for speaking their language uh, for the smallest infraction. I mean, they were terrible places. And my, and my mother was, was at boarding school. Her mother was at boarding school. My great-grandmother attended boarding school. So we have a long line of, of the abuse uh, that was perpetuated on all of the children at those schools. And so I have been on a healing journey trying to trying to come to terms with the abuse that I suffered from my mother, that she suffered from hers. It starts out by acknowledging we have to learn about the abuse, what created that abuse to begin with. Because, you know, in the beginning times before the invasion and the colonization, my understanding of Lakota life on the on the land is that at night 
the family were, was, were in, were all together in their, in their teepee, in their home. And during the day, the, they divided the camps into two camps, two day camps. One was for women and one was for the men. And boys who were prepubescent spent the, their time in the women's camp. And while they were there, they learned about being helpful. They learned about, they learned about love and tenderness. They learned all that good stuff. And we've all learned initially and together how to live with the, the universal laws. You know, the universal laws is to treat each other with kindness and to help each other when we can. Whoever needs the help gets it. Nobody is left without shelter. Nobody is left without food or clothing. Then during, when the boys reached uh, pubescence, then they graduated into the men's camp. And in the men's camp is where they learned how to become warriors. They got to choose warriors, hunters, spiritual leaders, protectors, how to protect the camp. The women and the children come first because they are the women are the creators of all life on earth. And the men are the, the protectors of that life. That's what it was for us before. And then came the colonizers. And then after the colonizers, the survivors were gathered up and herded onto what are uh, really concentration camps. And too many of us still live in those concentration camps on, the, on those sites. It's, it's been terrible because the men were not allowed to go off reservation to hunt. As a matter of fact, anybody who went off reservation without a permission slip to be off the reservation were instantly labeled um, a savage, a wild Indian, and they could be murdered on site. We went from learning all how to, how to live with the earth, how to live with each other, how to honor the universal laws to how we are today. So the men lost their ability to be men. They weren't allowed to protect the women. They weren't allowed to go off reservation to hunt, so they couldn't provide for their families. And then alcohol was introduced by the trading post that came into Indian territory. And, and I remember a story about the first time one of the, one of the men, one of the Lakota men were walking past the fort and he went back to the camp and he said, I saw something that I never saw before. And I never knew something like that happened. But there was a man and he was beating his wife as though she were the enemy. So, I mean, that's incredible. I mean, this is all about the intergenerational grieving and the healing is learning to understand how did it begin? How did we go from who we were in the beginning times to who we are today? Well, it was imposed on us. And, and if you don't have a way to, to heal yourself before you start your own family, that's carried forward. And I certainly believe in cellular memory. Our cells carry the memories of that abuse. No amount of, and we weren't even allowed to practice our ceremonies because we do have ceremonies that help us heal from those things. I've been through, through many of those ceremonies now on my healing journey. So you have to start with learning the history, asking your, your mother, your father, what, what was your childhood like? And when they tell you what their childhood was like, it opens up your eyes. 
you know, and then, and then comes the forgiveness. We have to learn to forgive one another. And with forgiveness comes healing and understanding. And then comes activism. <laughs> Good word. Good word. I, I mean, uh, uh, the only piece I want to add is you can imagine how the challenge of walking all that back so people can relearn how to live in a good way and live in harmony with one another and with the land. The imagining of the reemergence encampment in over the solstice in June is just a first step to try and do that. How would we walk it back? What would workshops look like to help people learn how to live in right relationship with the land? Learn the stories, learn the spoken words, learn the, the performances, and see again how, how to reimagine relationship with the earth. This is a one step, hopefully eventually evolving to be an annual event or an annual series of events that could take place in, in the context of Northern Colorado. I don't understand fully the, the notion of reparation, but to me, this feels like a step towards reparation. You know, you can't walk back everything that happened ancestrally. It, you know, it's a long and very painful history and it's very difficult to sit with it and to, to hear it. Mm. But also, I think Tioshpe Wimaka wants to also introduce hope, hope as a way to move forward. And in, in what does that look like, especially for the young people? And so you, you were alluding to this in, encampment that is, is planned for the solstice on the former Hughes Stadium mm -hmm. space. And so we'll be building two lodges and, and, and having prayers and stuff. And I've invited as well the veteran community to join us on that because there are so many veterans who also suffer from PTSD. Now, PTSD isn't just some for soldiers who have been to war. Any woman who's ever been beaten or raped has PTSD. Any man who has ever had to fight for his, his family against any unseen thing that's, that could come their way, they suffer from PTSD. People who are homeless have PTSD. And so that's what these lodges are for, to help bring them back. We have a, a the Lakota have a ceremony. It's known as the calling back the spirit. Because whenever you undergo any kind of violence, male or female, you have PTSD. Well, at during the time of the violence, the act of violence, your spirit leaves your body. When it comes back, though, a, a piece of it is split off. And it doesn't, it doesn't go back into your body. And so you're left feeling there's something going on. Something is missing. What is missing? And what it is, is, is your, a piece of your spirit. And it happens every time you undergo violence. So when you call back the spirit, you're made whole again. And you can feel it. And then you have an understanding again of who you are. You can make, you can put yourself in balance again. You can find your center again and you can be, you can feel the healing happening. What better 
way to call back those spirits to bring those back those uh, lives back into right relationship than under those or nearby those twin cottonwoods. Yes, absolutely, and that's where we want to build them. Yeah, uh, in that sacred space, and I I think that it it when you retell the story of the lodge, uh, what's really it comes clearer and clearer every time I hear it is the lack of communication between uh, indigenous communities um, and government entities. And yeah. so, you know, part of what we see is by creating plans and ideas and dreams for the encampment to do to create space for healing is, you know, it's going to call into question. Uh, some of those relationships with the city of Fort Collins, some of those relationships with the public open lands uh, folks. We have been holding community conversations in the indigenous community. The first one was in January, and we're having another one on March 25th, where we're going to talk more about the intention of the encampment and the intention of stewardship on the former Hughes site and the intention of creating lodge creating some temporary places for performance, which then we will disassemble so we can leave it as public open space. So all that that planning and conversation is to continue to repair uh, what was so disrupted during colonization. Uh, it's to, to reshift into what chosen the the balance, the harmony of, of the human condition in relationship to the natural world. Mm -hmm. Do you see, Sean, why she is our communication specialist? Isn't she just wonderful? Yes. <laughs> I see it. I mean, you both have ways with stories and words. And I so appreciate how much love I feel between you two. That's what everybody says. <laughs> yeah. Can, can I ask a question, Christina? You spoke about the ways that violence splits our splits our spirit. Uh -huh. Does it does it work the other way too? That when we visit violence upon another, a part of our spirit is split away too. Well, I think that people who have experienced violence, they have that now in their cellular memory. And it's what they've been through that causes them to create violence around them. And so, yes, they do have their spirit, uh, part of their spirit that isn't there with them. But they also have a dark energy that can take the place of that. They have to go through a healing as well. Calling back the spirit for them is also a good thing. Learning how to forgive them so they can forgive themselves. I'm just thinking a lot of settlers, a lot of white folks, when they look at these questions of, of the legacies of colonialism, legacies of racism that are, you know, legacies because, because they happened in the past and yet they are deeply present now. Mm -hmm. um, th there is this sense of, I don't know what to do. Or as I was listening to you, I was just thinking that there's healing that needs to happen because of how settlers, white folks have visited violence upon others mm -hmm. and how there's just in how you were speaking about the encampment, just I, I sense this possibility for this healing to happen in a communal way. 
in a, in a, in a together way, which isn't to say there isn't spaces for each of us to have our own important spaces, but just that it, that it's a healing that isn't just about indigenous people. It's about the, the set of relationships that we are bound together in. Absolutely. And I'm so happy that you brought that up, Sean, because it's not just for native, as we're classified Native Americans. So there are four nations of people in the beginning times, the black nation in the West, the red nation in the North, the yellow nation in the East and the white nation in the South. We were, we were all lived according to the universal law. We all lived in a good way. We all treated the earth in a good way. We want to bring that forward. You know, we all made sacred covenant covenants with the creator. So the, the black nation in the West was given the covenant to take care of the water, to make sure that it was never polluted, that it was never damaged. And the same with the, the red nation, we were given the, the covenant to take care of the earth, to make sure that it was, it was honored. She was honored. Our earth mother was honored in a good way. The yellow nation was given the covenant, made the covenant with the creator to take care of the air that to, so that there would be no, no pollution and that we would always be able to, to breathe because let's face it, if we don't have any air, we don't exist. The same thing was done with the white nation. The white nation made the covenant to take care of the fire, to make sure that it was never used in a, in a wrong way, et cetera, et cetera. So we were all given the, um, the earth but we were all given separate covenants to make sure now if any one of us ever went astray we all came together to to, to talk about it and to approach the nation that was straying away from that covenant and to help bring them back into right relationship with what the things that that they were to take care of but we all messed up we all messed up the white nation started using the fire for for things that uh, that the creator knew was going to create havoc in the world. So the other nations went there and observed what was going on, but then they said, whoa, that's not so bad. Look, they're making weapons. That, well, that scared them. So they decided they better learn how to make weapons. So, so then everybody started doing saying, oh, well, you know, yeah, let them do that. Oh, we can use some of this over here. We all broke our covenants, every one of us. And so to bring the earth and, and humanity back into balance, we have to come together, work together to bring those things back into balance and harmony with each other. And we can only do it by dancing under the same tree of life. We, we're going to have representatives from all of those nations at this gathering. I love that the... the the way often Christina begins the story is in the beginning times, we were all indigenous. We all came from indigenous roots. Mm-hmm. And that notion of the separate covenants and not only are we responsible and have to have a, obligated to our individual co- covenants, but the part of the covenant, if I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, Christina, if I- oh, mis- I like the way you're going. I, I, but part of the covenant was to watch over each other, that it was, it was partially our responsibility to say, white nation, you've taken fire too far, this using it to, to 
kill and murder and create now drones and bombs and you know what look where we are today has gone way out of balance but it's hard to bring others into back into relationship so i think sean you ask a good question about what is the what does the collective healing look like and again i i think we're we're working towards that by creating a stage where elders can tell their story and the young people can say okay and here's you know here are the gifts we're bringing forward and how can we all partake and and further that mm-hmm. oh that's beautifully put and you know Sean when we talk about we chosen i think that was mentioned we chosen is is when is what a person walks it's the way they walk when they're in balance with their mental physical emotional and spiritual selves you can you know you have to work to keep those in balance um and you always let the spiritual lead the way because if you're if you're in balance with your with the spiritual part of yourself everything else falls into place everything falls into place so one of the things one of the things that that we're going to do is we're going to have a, a storytelling tp um for all of those who are interested who are trying to find their way back to their indigenous roots and that's you know that's one thing that i always mention in lodge when when there are other people there because i've had people uh come up to me and say you know christania i think i was an indian in another life and i said well that's possible um why and they said well because i just keep having these feelings and and i don't understand them but all this is going on inside of me and i said well that's beautiful i'm so happy that you've taken your first step on a spiritual journey however i would encourage you while you're walking with us on this on this path to search to do research into your own history find out about your own indigeneity because you're having an indigenous awakening not necessarily an indian awakening you know so that part of you that part of you that carries those cellular memories of your ancestors is awakening you know and i think that that's what we all need oh my god i just love it everything is so so interwoven mm. you spoke of the covenants that each of the nations made with the creator and and that that idea of covenant is 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 sacred to us as Unitarian yeah, Universalists yeah. because, you know, covenant is the promises that we make to one another are what, what creates how we can live in the world. Mm-hmm. We often say there is no coercion in covenant. I, I can't be in right relationship with you. If I'm trying to coerce you to do something, it needs to be free. Yes. And, and that's part of the brokenness in our relationships has been the coercion that has been a part of our relationships and and not seeing each other as 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 kin as equals, and not 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 re- respecting the, the the unique ways that each each nation um, inhabits the world. Mm-hmm. Very nicely put. That was beautiful, Sean. <laughs> I know it was. As you think about what you've shared and what's been said, that you would want to you want to say to our community, especially you know, when the topic of because we're talking about reparations today on Sunday, 
a lot of folks, especially white folks and settler folks, the conversation of reparations is hard because it can come with a lot of shame and a lot of feelings of, I don't know what to do. And a sense of where's my responsibility in this for things that have happened in generations. Mm -hmm. And yet most of our folks are continuing to harvest the rewards of those, of what has happened in the past. And so I, I just wonder, as you think about our community and our role in this healing, what, what right relationship, what steps towards right relationship you would, you would invite, be they spiritual, practical, um, or anything in between? Well, I find it exciting that more and more people are coming to a place where they want to give back, uh, in South Dakota, 500 acres uh, from, I can't remember which area it came from, but they donated 500 acres that was taken from the Rosebud Sioux tribe back to that tribe. They're the Sichangu band of the Lakota nation. I heard there's a farmer who had some land and he was busy building and, and being really happy with what what he had acquired. And then he found remnants of Native American living on that land. And he he gave those things back to the, the natives and he gave them the entire piece of land that he bought. He said, this is yours and I know how it was taken. And so I gift it back to you. There's more of that happening. So I want somebody uh, to gift me some land. <laughs> no, because this, the whole idea of this reemergence encampment um, is because uh, I want to I start what, what we fondly call the neurodiverse university. And it's for, it's for uh, people who are living with autism, um, ADHD, PTSD, um, and, and those kinds of um, divergent uh, ways of being um, because we're oh and I love it uh, Elisa pointed out by definition uh, most of us are uh, neurodivergent because we don't think the way the government wants us to think we don't you know we don't want our thinking isn't linear and and I love that she pointed that out you know uh, all indigenous people especially are divergent neurodivergent because we want to go back to the land. We want to make things different. You know, we, we think in a different way. We look at them as being sacred. You know, they're sacred. They're gifts to us. They're, dis they're gifts to this world because they're teaching us patience. They're teaching us understanding. They're teaching us how deep unconditional love can go. They're teaching us different ways of communication of communicating. Can I just bring something forward on that's on a little, little smaller scale? Um, because one of the things that we hope in the reemergence encampment and in future workshops that, you know, we do bring forward is to involve people in these ways, in these hands-on face-centered, community-centered strategies. Uh -huh. Just a little plug for our effort where there will be some opportunities for um, community members to participate in helping to set up camp. You know, the encampment is Saturday and Sunday, the 18th and 19th. And 
mm-hmm. some activity overlapping to the 20th and the lodge. But in the days leading up to that, we're going to have uh, work sessions that people are invited to participate, to help put up the teepees, to help build the lodge, to help put up the shelter, to help clear space for camping and so on. And hopefully through this participation with indigenous leadership, folks will get a taste of what it is, it is like to participate in this way, to participate tactily and participate hands-on and participate through their hearts and listen to story as part of working. It's not, you know, separate. It's all the same. And so hopefully we still have to work out the specifics on that, but there'll be time slots that people could actually sign up for and, you know, go up and and take part of that. And, you know, I think we talked about this earlier, the, the proximity of the church to the Hughes land is pretty convenient. I mean, so if there's people that want to participate on that level, you know, we'll provide um, an opportunity for them to do that. I really do. I do feel for what you're asking, Sean, about, you know, people do now have a longing and a yearning. I don't think it's helpful to, to tell these stories so that people, you know, are drowned in shame or guilt or, Mm -hmm. oh my God, look what my people did to your people. I mean, that's just not useful now. No, it's not. Useful is to have opportunity to shift, to transform, to act in a different way. And usually, I mean, one of the things that I, I, that keeps me so invested in this project is that you find out you can do these things and have fun. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> you, know, that, you know there's a lot of laughter and there's a lot of um, um singing and there's a lot of opportunity to exercise yourself physically mm-hmm. um, and to know you were part of something you were yeah. part of creating it yeah it's such a feel-good thing mm. as i was speaking with Christina and Alyssa, the words of joy harjo the poet from the Muscogee Creek Nation in Oklahoma, saxophonist and past U.S. Poet Laureate, started to ring in my ears. You can't just begin anywhere. It's a wreck. Someone has to make it out alive, saying a grandfather to his grandson. His granddaughter, as he blew his most powerful song into the hearts of the children. There it would be hidden from the soldiers who would take them miles, rivers, mountains, from the naval cord place of their origin story. He knew one day, far day, the grandchildren would return generations later over slick highways constructed over old trails, through walls of laws meant to hamper or destroy, over the libraries of the ancestors in the wind born in stones, His song brings us to his home place in these smoky hills. Begin here. Begin here. With the stories that tell of the beginning. Begin with the stories that have been passed down from generation to generation of the origins of the beginning times of the hope to stay alive. And it is in these stories that we find our way back towards right relationship, towards what it means to be in this together. As I spoke to Christina and Alyssa, 
I was curious about how the questions I initially thought would be important about what Hugh's land back would mean and what native land stewardship would look like were not what they wanted to talk about. Instead, we talked about the land itself, its history, its place as a meeting place for Indigenous peoples, about the generations of harm that colonization has caused, but also for the potential for that harm to find healing, healing in relationship, the healing that comes from hearing the stories in circle with Elder. I felt the pull of what Kelly Brown Douglas refers to as the broadening of an immoral imagination. I mean, what would it mean for us as people of this land to open ourselves to asking the hard questions about what does open space mean? Open for whom? Space for what? What assumptions about our responsibility for the prosperity we have been granted by the theft of land? What is it? And how can we do that work of righting that harm in relationship? Now, many institutions, including CSU, have started offering land acknowledgments, naming the original stewards of this land in their work. But that's not enough. Kuchibaldi, who is the chair of the Native American Studies Department at Humboldt State University in California, offers this really instructive analogy. Imagine this, your roommate's boyfriend comes in one day and steals your computer. He uses it in front of you, and when you point out that actually that's your computer, not his, he disagrees. He found it, you weren't using it, it's his. She asks, how long until you're going to let that go. How long until you're like, never mind, I guess it's your computer now. What if years later, the boyfriend of your roommate feels bad about taking your computer, but he has this great idea. What if he puts a plaque on it that says it belongs to you? That way, every time he uses it, everyone will know that it used to be your computer. It will be his formal acknowledgement that he used that it used to be yours. How would you feel about that? Baldi concludes... The more work that we do with decolonization and reconciliation, the more you start to realize there is no reconciliation without the return of stolen land. It doesn't work otherwise. And as ta Coates writes, the idea of reparations is frightening, not simply because we might lack the ability to pay, like how would we give all this land back? The idea of reparations is threatening because it threatens something much deeper, America's heritage, history, and standing in the world. And it raises all sorts of questions for us. I imagine questions that you're asking yourselves now. But I think the biggest one for us to ask is why aren't we trying? We must look at the past and not simply feel sorry and acknowledge it, but move towards doing sorry, some sort of reparations. Doing sorry means facing our ghosts, paying our debts, surrendering to the transformation that repair demands that we might have to leave behind what we were, who we were, with all of its trappings and privilege. Repair means owning up to what we have done, accepting the inconveniences of our own actions, even if we weren't the ones that caused them, but only benefited from them, and leaning into relationship to guide us forth. Now, one of my classmates in seminary, Michael Wolfs, his congregation, a Baptist congregation in Evanston, Illinois, is working on their own reparations work. And in an article in Sojourners, he posed this powerful question. What if we thought that churches were, were spaces where reparations were uniquely possible? 
Since churches are institutions rooted in a particular place, memories of harm and past wrongdoing tend to linger and reverberate, but with this deep woundedness comes the potential for accountability. Maybe our church is interested in addressing the legacy of white supremacy. Maybe our church is uniquely suited to tend to those wounds, to see how the land might be a source of wounding, and that we might be willing to put our resources on the line in order to heal those wounds. One of the things I love about this podcast and, and this community is that we get to ask questions like this, questions that invite us to stretch our souls, to, to practice what it means to be human together, and, and to do that in, in widening circles of community. I, I want to thank Kristenia and Alyssa, all of the activists that were part of the Hughes Landback movement for, for sharing that conversation with me and with us. I'm going to invite all of us to think about what it means to, for us to be good ancestors. It's true that there's nothing we can do about the past, but there is something we can do about the past that we are creating right now, which is to say, the future that we create together. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode. I'm so grateful for you to, to be a part of this journey with us. And as always, we love hearing from you. You can reach out at deeperpod at D-E-E-P-E-R-P-O-D at foothillsuu.org. Any comments, criticisms, or anything in between, we love hearing from you. Next week, we're going to be starting a new series, which I think you're really going to like. So until then, thanks for listening. 